I won't name the national black organization. I spoke there this summer. They had an orchestra at one of the programs, about 85 members of the orchestra, strings and everything, had a big singer. Not one member of that orchestra was black. And I don't think they see any contradiction in what they're doing. They're in a white hotel, they're spending millions of dollars, even they have an all-white orchestra. And God knows if blacks can do anything, we can certainly play music. You're, you're, just, you're, you're comparing us to who now? Cassius Clay and his trainer. Oh, so I'm Cassius. Well, um, <laughs> by virtue of you're the young black man and I'm the older white guy, yeah. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the classical music podcast that names the issue and the people behind them. Or do mm. we? Or do we, Scott? <laughs> do we name them? Will we name them? The people want to know more about this TMEA presentation that we talked a little bit last week. So we're going to get into that in the triloquy. But just generally speaking, Scott, we kind of um, talked about this over dinner. Do you think that is equitable? Do you think there is use behind naming the people or naming the organizations behind the issues that we name and that we cite? Um, You brought up an instance where I said, yes, that do, that would be helpful to name the person. And then there was also a context where I said no. So I guess it's all context. Right? So it's case by case. I get it, I guess. Yeah. Well, as you heard in the downbeat today from Mr. Tony Brown, I pulled that uh, from a program called The Issue of Race, a Phil Donahue PBS special, actually, um, from, from 1992, in which Tony Brown, someone who was not at all connected to the arts, was, some, was very much a businessman when we mm-hmm. talk about black equity, mm-hmm. but went to the event of some black organization where they had an orchestra and the orchestra didn't have any black people in it. So for that specific instance, would you feel like it would be useful to know what black organization that was that didn't think back in the year of 1992, you know? That would help. So I guess this case by case, maybe it'll help for us to name the person down in Texas, but we'll see. We'll see. That's coming up in the fourth movement. Thank you everyone for coming back for this 89th opus of the Triloquy podcast, the last the last one of the 80s, Scott. Of the, oh my gosh, Look what are we going to do? We're, we're doing it. You feeling good today? I feel, I feel better now. Good. Yeah, it's always good to have a meal and maybe a cocktail, some conversation, because, you know, I've been spending all day alone with Radar and rattling around in my own house, kind of going a little blinky. So it's good to be here. And nice to all, see you. And it's always a pleasure to have you here. This 89th opus of Triloquy is made possible in part by Unclassified. Unclassified curates classical music playlists for moments and themes, including music for study, sleep, discovering new composers, or just vibing with your friends. Unclassified's profile and playlists are available on major streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora, Amazon Music, and and more. Discover classical music at unclassified.com. Thank you everyone to Unclassify for supporting Triloquy. Scott, you know how I love to pull a receipt. So let's see what they're suggesting us over here at Unclassified. There's a playlist called Hues of Music, Black Voices. Mm. And as I scroll, I'm seeing the Negro Folk Symphony of William Levi Dawson. I'm looking at uh, uh, the, uh, the um, uh, not American Porter Call, the uh, Three Spirituals by Adolphus Hellstork. We talked about that in conjunction with the 
inauguration and all of that. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, Sanctuary Road, uh, Road featuring uh, 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 Triloquy guest Ray and Bryce Davis. So all kinds of incredible stuff over here on these playlists as curated by Unclassified. You see anything interesting? Jesse Norman down here doing uh, Dido and Aeneas. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just black composers. It's black musicians doing... Uh, a whole palette of different composers work on that list. Absolutely. So again, huge thanks to everyone over there. I already mentioned um, the the bit from Phil Donahue and Scott when we talk about Black History Month. I have really been doing my due diligence to go back and take a look at things in conjunction with black history that I can really use, namely media and different content that was being created back in the day. So in addition to visiting all of the Phil Donahue panels on race, um, I went back and looked at a show, a program called Soul, specifically a broadcast from 1971 featuring Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin. And uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of that without giving it all the way to the people here in the announcements. The excerpt I played for you, um, pretty spicy, pretty poignant, and even, you know, um, garnered a, a, a response out of you. Mm-hmm. Do you think media is still doing that? Is is media as trill these days as it was back in the 70s? When I look at some of the panels that Donahue had, that Morton Downey Jr. had, mm-hmm. do you know that name? No, I don't. Um and then, you know, when you showed me that clip from the James Baldwin program, did he have a series? Did I don't know a, if he had a series, but was, of course, a guest on um, everything. Dick Cavett. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. All, yeah. All those. I think that they were hitting the issues more head on than we are. Yeah. Yeah. It was raw. It was more raw the way that they were dealing with it. And you said that you heard Phil Donahue throw out the N-word yeah. on television. <laughs> Which is problematic, of course. But and, you know, it, back then, they were just... It was a wild west almost as far, as far as how you were allowed to traverse the conversation of race through media. That would be censored today, wouldn't oh, it? Oh, uh, as it should be. And I'm not trying to, this is not about canceling Phil Donahue. It's about understanding that these panels and all of this content they were, on racial equity has been around for a while. And it's even been spicy for a while. We Maybe we've dulled down in recent years. So anyway, we'll, we'll get into that um, in, in the triloquy. Um, lots of great music to get to today. Uh, today's third movie. Movement features James Bennett from James Bennett the second, I should say, from WQXR. You have the opportunity to sit, sit in. in on that conversation. Um, seems like a nice guy, doesn't he? What do you think about writing in classical music, uh, in the field of classical music, just specifically using the pen to get a point across? That must be a different set of muscles, huh? It is a whole different set of muscles, and also uh, it's great to see a black man doing that. Yeah, because I'll be honest with you. Every other person that I've seen in a position like he's got has been sort of a uh, highbrow white guy, you know, with the patches on on, on the sport <laughs> yeah, coat, yeah. elbows, mm-hmm. and all that. Maybe a pipe. Sure. So Bow it's tie. good. Yeah. So it's good to it's good to know that his perspective is getting out. Yeah. Speaking of the bow ties, we had that conversation mm. on the anniversary of the death of Malcolm X. So um, that'll that'll tie in as sort of a, a through line to this 89th opus of Triloquy. But in the meantime, let's go ahead and jump in to uh, our accidentals. The very first thing I want to do is to send warm thoughts and warm vibes, pun intended, to the folks down in Texas. It's easy to view this sort of thing from a distance and not really be impacted. Scott, I can't begin to understand what those people are going through only as far as 
being a Southerner and having lived through some of those freak winter storms that mm-hmm. for us are debilitating. Mm-hmm. So I can I can only imagine um, they, huge, huge, huge shout out and warm thoughts to everybody down there. No infrastructure to take care of it, you know. So even if you were able to try to go and get some water or food, the roads are a wreck. You're you're from Omaha, and yep. that means that you are used to snow and winter weather to an extent. But do you have any experience with being out of winterland and having to deal with winter like they're dealing with right now? Family somewhere else, maybe? Only, uh, oh, meaning like getting isolated and cut sure. off with no power and all yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. We did um, in, I believe it was 1974, there was a big blizzard. And um, we didn't have power for a couple days, but thankfully we had a wood-burning stove and plenty Mm. of firewood. So while we didn't have power, we were warm and we were able to cook on the top of that stove too. So I was, you know, I was like four or five. It was, it was a game at that point. Yeah. But yeah, right. As a kid, you don't realize how dire it is. I remember very vividly being in first grade and anyone from Memphis will remember Ice Storm 94. We were out of power for a couple months. It was a long, long time. We, we had, we had to even uh, stay with, uh, I can't remember. I, I feel like it was, uh, no, it was uh, January, February ish, okay. actually, because I remember, you know, staying with family, but still going to school. And Valentine's Day was a, okay. a that, that's one of my memories. But anyway, we were out of school for so long because of the winter storm that when we finally got back to school for the rest of the school year, the day was extended by an hour. I mean, plus adding all of the snow days that are built in at the wow. end. And, wow. Um, going home at night and my mom putting us all in the same bed and putting what felt like 50 blankets under us. It was probably four, you know, but just feeling that secureness and there was a a funness and a novelty around it. But my mom was really making sure we weren't freezing to death, you know? Yeah. As soon as she left, you know, as soon as our parents leave the room, they're probably going, Oh my God, what the hell are we going to do? Who, but anyway, so not, not, not a whole bunch. Shout out Texas. But, but, but Texas, we're thinking about y'all. One of the pieces of music that I wanted to share here in the opening to honor Texas back on the inauguration opus, I talked about how the military bands have always had the tradition of being the example for collegiate students as far as the wind band repertoire that we that we play. Mm-hmm. Um, another one of the bands that really leads the way in that regard is the North Texas Wind Symphony at the University of North Texas. Um, there's a piece that uh, they recorded some years back by composer Toshio Mashima called The Snowy River. It's a part of a work of his called Three Notes of of Japan. So here's a little bit of the Snowy River featuring the North Texas Wind Symphony as we honor Texas and move on to our next accidental. Garrett, did you tell me that you got rid of Amazon Prime? I got rid of Amazon, but Dell has it, so I guess I have access. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> so um, twice I watched the new film on Amazon called One Night in Miami. You've probably seen advertisements or um, um, 
some sort of media about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Regina King, this is her directorial debut. And, um, you know, she was great in Watchmen. Yeah, for folks um, who don't know, Regina King, you know, has, has been around for a long, long time and done right? lots, of, lots of different types of things. But uh, she, she was great in The Watchmen, and so I was really excited to see what she would do with One Night in Miami. Um, she takes the stories of four leaders in the mid-1960s, four black leaders, and um, sort of takes some true story and some fictionalized, you know, magic movie, magic making, and um, puts them in a hotel room in Miami and they start having a conversation. Mm-hmm. And now that conversation did actually happen right, right. between Malcolm X, um, Cassius Clay, who would become Muhammad Ali, right. Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown, who was a football player for the Cleveland Browns. What did the... Uh Barbershop folks and coming to America say about Cassius, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, his mama called him Clay. I'm going to call him Clay. His mama named him Clay. I'm going to call him Clay. <laughs> anyway, anyway, black history. That, um, that, this, this really happened down in, down in Miami. It did. and um, But she took several different stories from each of these individual men. And even though they happened months and months apart, she set it up so that all four men were on a precipice mm-hmm. uh, this night. Not only is the is the country on a pre- precipice of, of race at this point, 64, 65, yeah. but each of the men are facing their own challenges. So uh, Kinsley Ben-Adir uh, plays Malcolm X. He's about to leave the Nation of Islam. Um, and Eli Goray plays Cassius Clay. Uh, he almost lost to an English boxer named Cooper. Mm. Uh, almost the knockout uh, was saved by the bell and the ropes. That's all one, right? <laughs> and so uh, he's about to fight Sonny Liston mm-hmm. and also about to join the Nation of Islam. Okay, Leslie Odom Jr. Shout out Leslie. You know, might know him from Hamilton. Right. Uh, he did Sam Cooke, and in, in his storyline, he just bombed at the Copacabana. Uh, Aldous Hodge, uh, hats off, Aldous. He played Jim Brown. Um, just a an, an amazing, and I have to say that all of these uh, actors were not giving impressions of these characters. I mean, they just sort of assumed the character. It wasn't an impression; they embodied them. Uh, in particular, Aldous Hodge. You know, Jim Brown is slow, strong, metered. Mm-hmm. You know that sort of thing. And and Aldous was that front to back. You know, he was steady, and I, I don't even even though you know he was. Um, part of uh, the, the the Black Power movement at this point, I, f- I think that I would have felt safe around it, you Be- know? Because power to the people is safety to the people, really. But I'm just don't saying, get me started, go ahead. Sure, no, I'm just saying that, yeah. you know, he portrayed that very Jim Brown um, aesthetic that I always got of strength, security. Um, um, he felt, he was self-assured, I guess you stand this. You have gotten it's a, your black history in this it's, month. <laughs> it's a good film. It's a really good film because uh, just as there are so many different points of view, and even you and I share different points of view when it comes to talking about race issues. Mm-hmm. Here's four men who themselves are fighting on how to proceed. Um, because at one point Cassius is pissed off at Malcolm because he thinks that Malcolm used him right. to get and people. All, and into, all of this is real history right. that manifests and that, that al- history. They almost yeah. fought on that. 
And then here's Sam Cooke over here with all this money. And he's saying, what are you talking about? I own, a, I own, what are you talking about that I've sold out? I own a record label and I record all these black artists and, and I'm selling rights to the, the white man. And now they're getting money. All, all these black artists are going, and what, what do the Rolling Stones want to cover of mine? You know, so I want to start making some money. Uh, and then here's Jim Brown getting ready to leave the NFL and go into movies. And he's over there going, man, my knees aren't going to hold out. So I need to take this adva- I need to take advantage of this. Um, all four men trying to find their way in a, a white dominated society and how they're going to move forward and and the conflicts among themselves. Uh, hats off to Regina King. One night in Miami, you stand. I'm I'm gonna watch this movie. A couple a couple things that I, I want to uh, underscore. When it comes to how excited you are about this movie, first of all, we'll get to the music. We'll get to Sam Cooke here in a second. But we were talking about, you were talking about the relationship, the dynamic between Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, and his coach. And thinking about some of the conversations they had, maybe some of the conversations they must have had to have, you know, talking about, you know, an older white man and a younger black man in that time, you know, yeah. sort of reminds me of something like Triloquy. Right. So shout Did that espouse anything in you? Did that did that hit close to home? First off, just <laughs> let me say shout out to Michael Imperioli. It's good to see him still getting work. A uh, big fan of his. Um, and. You know, he plays uh, Angelo, his trainer. Mm-hmm. So an Italian, an Italian-American guy, they're loud. They point a lot. They get in people's faces. And so Cassius and him were going back and forth a lot and arguing a lot. And Angelo was riding him constantly. And Cassius is always going, you know, come on, get out of here with this. You know, this, this, this is all details, you know. Um, I, I also loved how each of these men were taking different approaches in their career. Like Cassius is saying, I love Gorgeous George. Look at all of these, look at all these people who go in there to watch him lose. Mm. So if I go in there and win, oh, they're gonna hate me. Oh, and they're gonna pay a hundred dollars a night to come in and watch me whoop somebody's ass. Hats off to Cassius Clay. Um and Sam Cook wanting to know what what his spot, you know taking spirituals and turning them into pop songs. Yeah, and let's bring that to life. Like, did, did you actually listen to Sam Cooke? Do you have a relationship with the music as it actually existed? When I was 13 and 14 years old and starting to make cassette mixtapes for girls that I liked, okay. I was putting Sam Cooke on before anybody even told me about the history of Sam Cooke. Don't know much about history Don't know much biology don't know much about a science book Don't know much about the French I took But I do know that I love you And I know that if you love You can't take for granted, Scott, that there are some people who do not know Sam Cooke. And talking about black history, um, black music, and its integration and relationship with Folks like Malcolm X, Jim Brown, and Muhammad Ali, we, we have to do a better job of highlighting it. And shout out to Regina King for helping us. So again, the, the, as excited as you are about this, I'm, I'm going to sit down and, and make sure I watch this, even if I am giving some money to Jeff Bezos. Uh, she, 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 really, she really did a nice job of putting this together. Um, and again, shout out Leslie Odom Jr. for some fantastic performances of Sam Cooke's music. Um, I just think the cast was rock solid and they had a plan um, in an interview I saw with the four of them and their producer. They were talking about 
uh, the, the, the key that they were grappling with was, are we willing to have a private conversation publicly? And that's what you see with these four characters is some very private moments dramatized um, and skillfully put together by Regina King. Yeah, well, shout out to her. Once again, everybody go check out that support black art, uh, black woman led art and black history. Go learn. This is this this is a story that uh, passed by a lot of people, I'm sure, and in, in, in their development. Is there a musical performance from this film that uh, that struck you? The most impactful moment was uh, near the end when they have Leslie set up on, I believe it was the Johnny Carson show, the Tonight Show, um, and he's got this new song, and the camera sort of swoops in. And he just belts out the first note and it sends chills down your spine. Such an outcry of frustration, pain, and hopefulness all wrapped together with... I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Ever since It's been a long A long time coming But I know Change gonna come Oh, yes it will It's been too I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that among everything, among the incredible things that Regina King has done over the years, is voicing my favorite Hotep, Huey. <laughs> Huey from the Boondocks is the background to this computer that I use. Mm-hmm. My my laptop has Riley, and my cell phone, since it's my old my iPhone, my oldest device, I have Grandpa in there. Shout out and rest in peace to John Witherspoon. Mm. Re- Regina King has been all all over here and you know what Huey if you know his character Scott would have had a big issue with the final thing that we need to shout out on our accidentals today I have a flat for the Indianapolis Museum of Art oh no this (laughs) right so I'm reading from NBC News I'm laughing because it's crazy but also every day we'll get into it uh the headline says white art audience job listed prompts resignation of indianapolis museum head let me read that again correctly the so-called white art audience job listing prompts resignation of indianapolis museum head so let me read a little bit from the article here the president of the indianapolis museum of art at newfield's resigned on Wednesday, days after the institution apologized for posting a job listing seeking a new director who would maintain the museum's, quote, traditional core white art audience. The museum's board of trustees and board of governors said in a public letter that Charles Venable's resignation was, quote, necessary for new fields to become the cultural institution our community needs and deserves. It says Chief Financial Officer Jerry Wise will serve as the interim president scott Mm. (laughs) react (laughs) i am surprised that with everything that has happened in this past year surrounding uh our hot our hot summer (laughs) i mean not to laugh about that but 
really set in how long, the computer. How long was typed that? Right, and didn't read it out loud. <laughs> didn't have anybody else read it, or I don't know, maybe he did. But and let's look at oh, the date just to tell the people. What right, does that say? February nineteenth. Okay. Right. So we we saw it coming, but okay. So my my first question was. Uh, did he look around <laughs> um, first off and second how long has he been in the gig long enough to think that's okay right no no what I'm saying is if if this viewpoint that he had came out because he wrote a want ad mm-hmm. oh right how long has he been gatekeeping me and how has that manifested in what the museum actually holds do they have a youth day or there's all you're right you're exactly right there are all types of ways in which that can manifest my thing is scott this is what all the institutions say anyway they just say it without saying it like that Mm. because when we what does it say here the the job listing uh cited a need for white art audience i'm a traditional core white art audience traditional core white art audience let's take out the word white traditional core audience mm-hmm. that's not that is not a, could, a phrase that is not said yeah that could be out there right now that, sure. that is that is not i mean that phrase has been said to me in my in my various roles in in different things so from my perspective this is no different than what all the other folks are saying. He just got caught with his pants down by being obvious about what has always been a dog whistle. But, in, but in this paragraph, um, the uh, they were seeking a director to, quote, attract a broader and more diverse. This, this sentence doesn't agree with itself. What does it say now? Attract a broader and more diverse audience while maintaining the, music, music, the museum's traditional core white audience. See, people how, want both. How, Okay, but that, that's what I'm saying is yeah. that's talking out of both sides of your mouth in the same sentence. That's what I'm saying. People want change by staying the same or they want change, but they don't want the change to impact what they want to be the same. You're right. It's talking out of both sides of your mouth and it doesn't quite work. And again, more arts institutions, most arts institutions, I would say more than 50% of them trying to do this sort of so-called equitable work don't understand the base level of things like this, like the issue of affirming of the, the need to maintain a core white audience. That sounds like white supremacy to me. And we want to pretend like that's such a strong word, which it is a strong phrase. But this is strong for me to read a headline talking about they're looking somebody to maintain the core white our audience. And the problem is they got to hire somebody black now. As we were saying earlier before we cut on the mics, they have to hire somebody black. Is there a black person that would take it? Not, not, not I. <laughs> I have to wonder. You know, and... They, they, they could have had the opportunity to hire someone on who was black or, or a person of color for them to bring in their perspective and change the culture of the place. But mm-hmm. even from the job description, they got it wrong. So, you know, th- th- now now there's just reverb uh, reverberating effects of that that aren't going to go away. I think we we try to act like, OK, well, we apologize. So it's no, I'm not going to that museum. If I'm ever in Indianapolis, right. period, right, and that's and and that's just that. So I'm, I'm sorry uh, that the people of Indianapolis have to um, deal with that. Did I did I name the man's name? I'll I'll post the article. Y'all can see it. One thing that I did want to um, shout out Indianapolis for, though, something good. Black History Month. I I was looking at um, famous black people from Indianapolis, and the name at the top of the list was Babyface. I don't know if we've mm. ever talked about Babyface on Triloquy. Mm-mm. When I say the name Babyface, where does your mind go? 
early 90s right and as far as you know you're driving around you're going on dates what songs were you listening to if you can remember one tax me that i i I don't think because they're so well the thing is there's so many and he wrote even more songs than we know from him as an artist so then i probably like songs that he's written that i don't even know it let's look at a few of them i'm scrolling here all night long by swv the folks who really been down with black music for a while baby 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 by tlc baby 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 Best Thing I Never Had by Beyonce. And if you've written for Beyonce, you've made it. I mean, let's talk of, I mean, even a Justin Bieber credit here, Catching wow. Feelings, a couple Bobby Brown for the for the back black folks who were dancing in the late 80s, early 90s. I'm sure you've <laughs> spun a Bobby Brown tune or two in, uh, in your DJ days, right? Every time. I, yeah, every dance when when, <laughs> when um, My Prerogative came out, yeah. Yeah, anyway, shout out to, um, to Babyface, really important figure in black history. As I think about that museum, that just really did the wrong thing and is going to have to pay for that for years to come. What's my advice? Don't take it so personal. Song by Babyface. Let's listen to a little bit of that. Continuing to look at this list, I'm seeing Lil Wayne featuring Babyface Comfortable. I don't think I remember that. I'm a, oh, that was on Carter 3. I'm going to have to go back to that. Babyface really did it. We're going to have to really do a, a Babyface sort of thing on Triloquy um, one of these days. But, it, but, but anyway, for now, let's go ahead and get into the second movement um, and strike a chord, talk about the music that uh, moved us this week. Scott, all month long. It seems like every week we have been coming in with a rest in peace, a rest in power. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to celebrate a birth anniversary today, a born day. Since the last time that we've recorded, the legendary Smokey Robinson turned 81 years old. What Congratulations. Do you love, what, do you, what do you love about Smokey? First of all, he still looks great. <laughs> he does. I saw the pictures. Yeah, yeah. We were talking earlier, He's he's hit sort of that Aretha Franklin level this legend of, right of yeah. performance uh, aretha or maybe even roberta flack you know and he's uh packs all of his concerts and there's so few and far between because you never know when he's gonna go out again right yeah um he was one of the artists that i remember being uh 11 12 years old any car trip you know it was my job to, it was my job to keep the radio in tune right because we had to turn the dial back in the stone age mm-hmm uh, and he was in there, you know, with uh, being with you, being with you. Honey, don't go, don't they also put a hoodie on him one time and had him doing hip hop. You showed me that. To, I don't, why did they? Why did they? Anyway, <laughs> but shout out to that. Uh, when I saw that it was his birthday, my mind instantly went to the classic Tears of a Clown. Why? Because all all uh, bassoon players. All instrumentalists, I'll say, 
Uh, we'll, t- well, we'll probably talk about this in a second because I think you're going to talk about Stevie Wonder, but all instrumentalists look to hear their instruments in sort of pop music and that sort of thing. You mm-hmm. can, you know, trumpets, violin, string, that, that's one thing. Bassoon, you don't hear it all that often, but there is prominent bassoon in Tears of a Clown. I would say it's our primary, our principal pop excerpts for bassoon and when you just it's it's it perfectly encapsulates you know this song written by stevie wonder by the way it encapsulates the spirit of the song on a meta level because Mm. he's talking about being sad on the inside but happy but if you're just listening to the song it's this happy incredible song right the the bassoon part bodies uh all of the whole orchestration of it is incredible i sort of miss that out of music specifically out of r&b so happy birthday by this time happy belated birthday to Smokey robinson i'd love to celebrate him here with an excerpt from tears of a clown Before I let you open up your Stevie Wonder bag, um, we also had the birth anniversary of Nina Simone since the last time we recorded. We talk about Nina Simone a lot. She'll be coming up coming up in the uh, coming weeks for sure, but just wanted to make sure I named that as well. Rest in power and happy birthday to Nina Simone. Um, I got to talk about another Michigan boy because uh, Smokey was born in Detroit. Yep. And I have to talk. I, I would be... Uh, really upset with myself if I didn't bring in Stevie Wonder over Black History Month. So let's. Um, so before we even really get into him, Stevie Wonder as a figure who we will of course celebrate when he's gone. We'll we'll wait till somebody's dead to honor them. What is it about Stevie Wonder that really makes him a classic composer, a classic figure to Black history, to Black music history, to American history, world history? If you don't know who Stevie Wonder is, keep in mind that he's uh, been blind since birth and has learned to play piano. He played harmonica um, in that 1995 Tokyo Philharmonic concert we mm-hmm. looked at. He's playing drums. Um, I, I do not know. Of, how can you not like Stevie Wonder? I mean, he's got decades long. He's, his career is decades long. There has to be a piece of music from somewhere along his chronology that you like. We were talking about the bassoon in Tears of a Clown. When I think of Sir Duke, who held an instrument and didn't try to do that? Sure. <laughs> or sure. didn't actually. Well, keep in mind, uh, my older brother, John, was a trumpet player in uh, the high school band. He was second chair. There was always this nip and tuck battle between him and the first chair guy. I know that world, but from the first chair. Go on. (laughs) Um, And uh, it was always a big treat when he would let me come in his room, Mm -hmm. you know, because I was the annoying younger brother. But he had a great record collection. And since he was a horn player, any album that came out that had horns on it, he had it so songs in the key of life was right there from a very early age for me and so i know sir duke and you know all those uh, all those great tracks but i want to go back um to 1989 when the red hot chili peppers comes out with an album called mother's milk and they do a cover of a steel of a stevie wonder track called higher ground 
And I was working at an alternative rock station at the time, and all of these skaters and alternative rockers and, and goth types are going nuts over this, this amazing Red Hot Chili Peppers track. And I'm in the back, this little nerdy kid, you know, that has bad hair and, and big teeth. And I said, but they didn't write that. And there's a record scratch and every head turns back to me. What do you mean they didn't write it? So I go home. <laughs> and <laughs> look at you so i go home and i got the album and i brought it in and played it for him so um i i got to i got to act like you know everybody that worked at the station is like the stereotypical person that works at a record store first of all you came back to the record store with your hotep hat on <laughs> <laughs> my fez they were, um, they were kings and Stevie Wonder wrote this song, brothers. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So uh, I, you know how people who work in that used to work in record stores or radio stations have, uh, they can be a little snooty about their knowledge oh, of, of mu- oh, their knowledge yeah. of music. Oh, yeah. But I won that argument. I won that day. You got that one off. I did, um, and it was great to see that Higher Ground uh, was uh, one of the tracks that he played on his live. 1995 tour to Japan when he played with the Tokyo Philharmonic Orchestra. Can you imagine a, a, a symphony orchestra's horn section getting after higher ground? in Asia because they practice the parts over there and really come come in with it perfect. They're, you know, <laughs> they were on it. No, no, no shade. All, all, all celebration. I'm sure understanding the uh, the breadth and the impact, even at that point, much less today, of Stevie Wonder. Yes. All of those musicians came prepared, excited. A lot of them probably studied the original recording so much were in there editing their parts. We need to put some. We need to put more than respect on um, on Stevie Wonder's name. Just honor a, a legend. And when yeah. and when we lose him, we, we're going to lose everybody eventually. When we lose him, everybody's going to have the tributes and oh, he was such a great person. But we need to make sure we're celebrating our legends now. Stevie Wonder is already tired of us. Did you see that he's moving to Ghana? I saw that. <laughs> Talking to Oprah. Yep. He said he don't want to see us anymore in more ways than one. Right. <laughs> Anyway, shout out to um, Stevie Wonder. I'm glad you brought him up. We'll we'll have to start bringing him back up more and more because when we talk about classic compositions and even so-called classical music, the orchestrations, the the symphonic nature of the music, it's the there. lyrics. So yeah, there's just no denying the genius there, the level of composition that he has just really um, been been blessing us with over all these years. Uh, living tribute shout out to Stevie Wonder. Absolutely. Well, uh, as we get into uh, the third movement here, you know, uh, I'm sure James Bennett II loves Stevie. I mean, I, I, I wish that I had thought to uh, talk to uh, James about that. But James um, is a, a content creator, a writer over at WQXR. Scott, for folks who don't know WQXR, what is that? What sort of institution is that? Uh, what I know of them is they're uh, an all-classical station in New York City? Right. And New because, York City. And because of the sheer size of New York City, yeah. they're always at the top of the list as far as listenership because all those millions of people are there. Well, of course, that means millions of eyes on the website and yeah. the other things created. So James is 
um, a black man behind a lot of that, really pushing forward um, our narratives and making sure that that space can uh, remain and um, be as equitable as possible. As I mentioned earlier, we had the conversation on the anniversary of Malcolm X's death. And the first thing that I asked James was how would he react to the death of Malcolm X there in New York as that sort of content creator? We think about classical music and what that could really do with Malcolm X, but I think there could be connections there. So James um, speaks to that. Um, To get us into it, uh, I was going through my library and going through the interwebs, uh, listening to a lot of Malcolm X speeches, but also taking a listen to music that's Malcolm X adjacent and of course for the fame from the famous film about Malcolm X uh, mm-hmm. Terrence Blanchard the composer did the score to great that. score all sorts of really incredible music my favorite from the from the uh, from the score is a, a cue called going to Mecca and of course that speaks to Malcolm X going to Mecca and and discovering whatever he discovered over there that still got him killed I, I, I mentioned earlier before we turn on the mics and I'll mention now Yes, it's very important to cite the changes that Malcolm experienced when he went on his pilgrimage to Mecca. Mm-hmm. They still shot him, didn't they? Mm-hmm. So it's it's not about being peaceful or liking certain people. It's about facing a structure that does not want you there. And I don't want to get into the conversation of who killed Malcolm X because I don't, with all of the evidence we have that there was government involvement, Mm -hmm. there's still folks who want to push back and say, well, it was nation of Islam. So I I don't want to go there. I, what I do want to do is get into the third movement of this podcast (laughs) um, featuring James Bennett, the second. And again, there's Radar. Shout out to Radar, everybody. Um, but again, getting us there is an excerpt from Terrence Blanchard's score to the film Malcolm X, this tune called Going to Mecca. demographically, right, is such an American city by virtue of how many people are there, by what kinds of people are there, by how segregated it is. Um, but at the same time, it's it's an exception to the rule of American cities because it's so large and it is so big. And I think that there's a degree of, you know, I don't know the, the, the phrase is, but granted taking for, you know, the size, like the sheer size and scope of what's going on where you're like, I'm in a large city and we are having these conversations and these are my people and this is what I'm doing. And I can admit to me, at least, it feels sometimes that even me, like I get wrapped up in the New Yorkness of it all. um, And I have to kind of readjust to say, this might not be how people are feeling, you know, like in the Twin Cities, I have family there in Columbus, Georgia, right? In you know, Pinellas Park down in Florida. I'm just naming around my family lives. So, mm-hmm. um, but but that's what I that's what I kind of you know kind of kind of think about that. That it's a it's a bubble, but it's a huge bubble. And by the size of that bubble, you kind of forget that it is one. 
Right. And even despite the fact that it is sort of a bubble, there's so much we've gotten from the city. When we talk about rap, you can't talk about rap with, without talking about the Bronx. You know, when we talk about so many things um, on this day, as we're recording this 56 years ago, a bit of history was made in New York City that we don't necessarily celebrate, but we certainly honor the murder of Malcolm X. It's one thing for the uh, news folks to be running up and and getting all of that uh, information back in the day in the moment when it was happening. Maybe it's not something that music journalists would have run to. How would you have, uh, let's say this is 1965 and you're in your job uh, as a music journalist, as a classical journalist, how would you approach it? Would you ignore it? Would you try to find a way to incorporate that bit of news? What would it be for you? Yeah, I think, the, you know, and I'm still learning about a lot of this stuff. I think the first thing that I would do, or like the ideal thing that I would do, not necessarily the first, but the ideal thing I would do is talk to people in my community mm. as a black person. I think that, you know, sound is a powerful thing. Um, sound tells stories. It, it can express uh, joy and wonder, but at the same time it can express rage and anger and sorrow. And, you know, uh, in the classical world, we like to focus on that first part a lot. Yeah. Not so much of that second part, those emotions that don't feel good. And so what I would like to do in this, you know, I have this, I'm not trying to get off, off track, but what sure, I think sure. I would like to do is, you know, go down or go uptown, for instance, where that, where I went down to the Audubon Ballroom, right? And talk to people on the street and ask them, because, you know, we still feel this way, even with, you know, the, the ongoing, you know, slate of police killings. We express ourselves through music. This just happened. How are you feeling? And how are you expressing yourself musically or through sound, right? Now, the big question is, you know, what if it's not necessarily classical, you know, per se? Then I guess it becomes the job to kind of, you know, figure out a way to put the sounds that you're hearing, could be classical, could be not, in dialogue with, let's just call it, you know, instrumental orchestral or chamber music that right. you know. That could even maybe even try to match the mood, but don't necessarily force it. You know what I mean? So I think I think I would want to try to collect, you know, a, a sound capsule of what is going on there. I mean, honestly, I don't know if the word existed in 65, but, you know, kind of make a playlist of this is the sound of how people feel. And I want to bring that to you, I, you know, so that's the thing that's might be what I might try to do. Yeah. And of course, fast forward to now the 21st century, and there are different sorts of tragedies really plaguing New York City, namely the way COVID has shut everything down. Scott and I have, uh, I, I guess we shouldn't joke so much, but saying streets is done in New York, <laughs> where you talk about the Met, where you talk about the, uh, the the New York feel, you're still working, streets aren't done for you. How have you been able to traverse all of all of these concert closures, much less the restaurant closures and everything else that really feeds into the spirit of what New York City is? Man, so um, I would say that a lot of my listening, I think, has just turned inward, hmm. you know, because I'm not able to go out to, you know, um, concert venues, classical or otherwise. You know, I'm not able to go out to a bar after the show to talk to, you know, my friends or colleagues about it. So there's a lot of very intense and intentional um, listening of what's going on. When you go to a show, you're kind of at the mercy of whoever's programming or whatever the band wants to put on their set list. Yeah. But when you're home, you know, not that I you know, have listened to music in my own home before, but there's a, a very different way of like, what record am I going to put on today? What am I going to choose to listen to? What music will I choose to prioritize? 
What do I want to learn about? Um, I'm not going to go so far as saying I'm throwing my own private concerts, you know, yeah. on, on the turntable or through the speakers or whatever. Um, but it has been a more uh, intentional journey for me um, in terms of the work that I'm doing too. I mean, like, you know, listen, I mean, the black story is a, is a story that is inherently going to be joyful and painful. There's a big, there's a profundity to that in the American, in the American system. Uh, when everything went down, um, you know, last June, um, I had a thought like that. I thought I have a lot of freedom to be able to, you know, um, write about uh, whatever, right? Because there are no reviews to worry about. There are, there, I mean, yeah, there's news and stuff, but that's not really my what my particular task is. So I was like, I can choose to write about something that feels good to listen to, or I can write about seven um, last words of the unarmed, or we shall not be moved. And I think that is like kind of how the scope of my work in COVID, you know, has changed a little bit. Even the conversations that I've been having with people, you know, and in, in the interview, uh, the, the interview chair, mm -hmm. who am I choosing to, or at least trying to choose to put into that chair and to, you know, give their voice a platform. Not saying I'm that big of a deal. These people have a much bigger <laughs> platform than I do. But if I get to talk to, you know, I don't know, like, uh, you know, it's Laura Michelle, you know, fantastic soprano I got to talk to last summer. Like, that is something that I want to I want to be able to to, to lift up and, and bring to listeners. Shout out to Laura Michelle. I've had the opportunity to, to collaborate with her in conjunction with the Black Opera Alliance, so, mm -hmm. you know, all, all sorts of connections across the field. You speak to that more intentional approach to music, to listening to music, to consuming music that has to be true for many people you know not just you not 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 just me i can speak to how that um goes into programming or the way i talk about music um you've already you know noted that that can have an impact on who you interview for example who you give a platform to what are what are other ways and what other ways has a more intentional approach to listening parlayed in uh, your work that isn't necessarily always listening and certainly not to music Sorry, I just want to make sure I got the question right. So you're saying, how does that intentionality affect the work outside of the, the listening of music? Specifically your work, how does that broad intentionality impact your work as a journalist, as someone who's writing about music and musicians? Hmm. I think you have to ask yourself what's easy hmm. and then not do that. <laughs> I think that's the short answer. And, you know, and I say that, I say that with all seriousness, um, you know, 2020 was, I don't any 2021, but 2020 was when Beethoven 250 kind of came to a head. Right. Um, I went the entire, I think I only wrote about Beethoven twice that entire year. One for um, uh, an album of Beethoven five by uh, the Theodore Princess, the conductor and his orchestra. And once at the end of the year during a kind of 250 retrospective, and I thought, okay, I can write about how, much Beethoven nine has brought people together. Um, I can write about, um, you know, his relationship with George Bridgetower. I can write about uh, all sorts of different things about Beethoven, the person. But then I thought, you know, maybe a better tack might be to think about how, how can I write about the conversation of Beethoven during 2020? It was kind of meta in a way, right? So mm -hmm. what I had noticed was, you know, all of these Beethoven, and I'm going to get off Beethoven in a second, but all these Beethoven concerts got canceled, you know, from 
you know, uh, late February, early March until, until now. What's funny to me is that we were still able to center Beethoven uh, musically so much. Yes, it was his 250, you know, whatever. But I was like, none of these concerts are happening. Right. So how are we still like, I could, I, I could almost, I don't want to say understand, but I get it if, you know, went to this concert, went to that one, we're going to write about, we're going to talk about, but it's, it was silence. It was a much different soundtrack in 2020, at least among people that I knew. And so um, I chose instead to kind of talk about what our, you know, what our obsession with Beethoven um, meant. Now to kind of, you know, get beyond just like, you know, one particular person, mm -hmm. you know, I, I do think that going back to that idea of, you know, what's easy, right? Don't do that. Um, even before this pandemic, I've always, something I've told myself is that, I don't want to say that my job is easy, but it's easy to dial in. It's easy to scan the new releases. And I have a couple of music blogs that I like, and I always notice in the, they, have, they do a lot of stuff, but in the, oh, these are our favorite picks. It's always those same dudes mm -hmm. and new recordings of stuff that you've heard before. It's easy to do that and write about some of those. It's easy to, you know, find a piece of um, white composer ephemera or even black composer ephemera. We can get to that at a different point because um, it kind of takes the humanity out of the work that they're doing. So I kind of like have a small problem with that. Yeah. Um, it's easier to do that, but it's a lot harder to probe about the consequence of listening to that music. Uh, it's harder to talk to uh, performers, particularly black performers, about how they feel, you know, performing this music to an audience perhaps that, you know, might not look like them. Yeah. Of performing this music, of talking about their livelihood, you know, and then they have to, you know, talk to their, you know, family and friends who may or may not be familiar with what they're doing. It's a, cause again, there aren't a lot of black folk in that concert hall in the seats or on the stage. That's a harder thing to kind of probe. It requires a lot more work and a lot more effort. Um, I don't know if that's answering your question. But that's what I guess that's what the intentionality of the words means. What is not necessarily the story of the music, but the story of the people that are making that music, mm -hmm. and what's the, what's that consequence on, on us? Well, you bring up the idea of the black singer, the singer of color, the musician of color in front of this mostly white audience. To what extent does the audience factor into your work? Are you writing for white people? Are you writing for a mixed audience? Who who are you writing for? How do you approach that question? So I'm going to be completely honest with you and say I'm still trying to figure this out. Mm. I I had a really good conversation with a good friend of mine, a, um, you know, a radio producer, um, black person, and we talked for a long time about being in our respective fields, knowing what color those ears are, knowing what color those eyes are. I'm just kind of assuming blue and green, but white people have brown eyes too. Um, and what's the responsibility for me? Would I like black people to read what I write? Yes, absolutely. Do I hope they do? A hundred percent. Do I know that a lot of white people are reading it as well? Yes. And so because of that, I think what I like to do, because I have, because I know that white people are looking at it, and sometimes I don't even know if they know that I'm black. Um, mm -hmm. I like to just kind of throw, I'll throw a little bit of something in there, a little bit of like spice in there or something. Not to throw them off necessarily, but because I'm struggling, struggling to think of an example, but 
it's that effect of, let's say, someone who does not, a non-Black person reading that article, reading that post and saying, I don't get that reference. You know, I don't understand that turn of phrase. Well, maybe it wasn't for you to understand. You know, I don't need to unpack uh, the nuances of, of Black language, whether in speech or in writing, you know, in what I'm doing. Now, that doesn't mean that I need to start every article with like, there I was at the cookout and, yeah. you know, so-and-so <laughs> came on. Like, that's not necessarily what that means, but it is a matter of trying my best to bring my Black self to the work that I'm doing. And I think by virtue of that, those words are going to be a little bit Black too. Um, and I mean just the ethos of that again, not necessarily the, the, the vernacular, not necessarily the diction. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's like I, 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 I want a Black audience. I, I really, and every time I do get feedback from Black people, whether it's positive, whether it's negative, I'm generally on the happier side. Mm-hmm. You know, um, again, like my DMs aren't always blowing up, but if I see someone who's like, hey, you taught me something about that. Thank you. Or next time, why don't you try this instead? Here's an idea that I have. That's cool. So, I, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I'm writing for the curious and the open mind that also happens like to be black. I don't. Want, OK, let me wrap us all up. <laughs> I do not, I don't want to perpetuate, and it's an active thing. I don't want to perpetuate an air of exclusion of classical music through my words. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it really comes down to for me. Yeah. Um, because the classical music establishment, you know, for some has done a very good job of keeping black folks out of the conversation. Is and I want any, to make sure the door is open. Is there any reason why they aren't marketing your work to the communities of color? Or, or how, you know, or even how would that happen? What, what yeah, that you know, because like? that's, that's one of the things that Garrett and I talk about quite a bit is an orchestra can switch up its program and include more composers of color. A radio station or a television station can start incorporating more of those programs that address those communities, right? Mm-hmm. But those communities aren't going to know about it if there isn't some sort of a marketing campaign or an outreach. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to, I might speak in parable for a second, if sure. that's okay. Okay. Uh, Garrett, I think I've told you this story because I love I love this particular story of black classicalness. Um, in the early 19-teens, right, Scott Joplin sits down and he writes Trimonesia. And it never gets performed. Um, he does like a kind of recital version of it. Uh, and dude dies. He's upset uh, that this thing he worked so hard on never got done. Mm. Fast forward to the 70s. Um, and it's crazy because I did write about this, so I should know. But by whatever turn of what happened, some folks were like, let's do this. Let's put this on. There were some chance encounters. Yo, I have the score. I know where the score is. Let's go check it out. Who's going to be involved? Boom, TJ Anderson, Morehouse, Atlanta Symphony. So you have uh, an opera by a Black composer in a very Black city uh, mm-hmm. with you know this, you know, this composer, TJ Anderson, who I got to talk to, a great guy. Um, learned a lot from him. And um, all I could think about researching that story was that was that refrain that y'all brought up. Uh, if we switch up, you know, the, you know, if we, if we play this symphony and not that one, if we do, a, you know, an Edmund Day Day night or something like that, who's going to, who's going to show, you know, who's going to come to the, 
to the, you know, uh, Florence Price show, not the regulars. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's the case, you got to find some, I don't want to say at least temporaries, but you got to find some regulars for that night and for nights after that. So what they did in Atlanta, you know, uh, they organized. They went to those uh, PTAs. Uh, they went to the churches. They told their babysitters, put up flyers. They got word out. This is coming to Atlanta. It is the world premiere. We want people like us, like this composer, to listen to what he did, you know, decades ago. And that show sold out twice. And so it is, it, it is a double, it's not even a double-edged thing. It, it's not even an either-or thing. It's a yes and, right? Let's, you know, you know, put this on at the concert hall. Let's play this thing. And we have to go out and make sure that, you know, we get those people to know that this is happening and also not treat them obviously too like you know you know hey like you know welcome to like the don't infantilize and don't patronize Mm -hmm. right and that's that's a very difficult thing to do just to you know be able to have that kind of conversation um and just show like who are you you know i I remember um like i live in flatbush in brooklyn and a couple years ago when yacht von spaden became the you know concert master new york phil i remember there was an ad in um in the subway station at the the two five at Winthrop, which is almost at the end of the line, and I was just like, "This is an interesting placement for this ad with absolutely no context." You know what I mean? So yeah, I think I think there is a component of strategy that I don't know. I mean, like I could maybe learn, but I know it's there, and I know it is a it's a job, it is a task, and you can't you can't dial that in. Because if you do dial that in, it's not, not going to work. And then you're going to say, well, no one listened, no one came. And then you're kind of back to square one. Yeah. Right? yeah. And even if you do market these uh, culturally incompetent shows in, you know, in the in the depths of Brooklyn, you know, when I think about deep Brooklyn, it's not so deep. I have a a brother in Bushwick, you know, so mm-hmm. I think about, you know, a, a poster for the New York Phil out there might not necessarily do anything. OK, if you post out there. Uh, New York Phil and Drake or Beyonce or even the Roots and Tank of the Bangers. You know, it doesn't even have to be a, a world, you know, known artist like like Beyonce. If you market in that way, if there's a change in content, obviously, you know, the folks are going to be there. It's obvious to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the concert stage, though. How do you add in that bit of seasoning, that spice into journalism? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's, I guess it's a question of platform, right? It's a question of, and this is the most inarticulate answer I can give. I don't want to say social media smarts, but I feel that a lot of times, you know, especially, you know, my people, like my parents, I'd be like, social media can't be a job. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> Go to work. And I know some fantastic social media managers, um, and that is that is work that has to be done to cultivate right uh, an audience, and that's how you get that those words out there. You get those posts up, you get those articles out there. Yeah. By in, it's it's a matter of engagement, right? And it's a different kind of engagement because you're behind a computer and they're behind a computer, and you got to grow that count one by one. This is not coming from someone with you know thousands of followers, but that's at least how I imagine it to be. There's again, it's that it's that it's that matter of effort, and I feel that I that's the funny thing about journalism, right? It's like, you see the headline, 
And you see the headline when it's when you have someone with a, a, a large platform, boom, put out that link and it gets in front of so many eyes. And you can at least have people saying like, oh, I saw that headline. Did I read it? No, but I did see it. And if I do want to read it or something I need to read, I can go and find it. Um, but these things can't be, they can't be, they can't be linear. They all have to happen in concert. No pun intended. Right, right. Um, if I can just like take a quick aside, I remember talking to uh, this dude at, uh, he was at Temple, um, this professor uh, for uh, urban studies. Um, and he was giving a talk on gentrification um, and a talk on, uh, you know, revitalizing, quote unquote, like the black city. And I talked to him, I was like, yo, dude, I thought your talk was really good. So if you're the mayor of, you know, Philly or Baltimore or whatever, what's the first thing you would fix? Would you fix the public transit? Would you fix, you know, you know, the food stamp program? Would you fix housing? He's like, you can't just do one, one, one. He's like, you have to figure out a way to put, to draw all of these things in, you know, at the same, at the same time almost, and kind of, you know, have them feed symbiotically off of each other. So as far as the question of just kind of, you know, getting, and this is the thing that I think a lot of outlets struggle with classically when words come into play. I think that the, the audience is conditioned to want to listen and not to read. They want the, the feel good music, they might not want that context. And there has to be, I think, an effort from you know small blogs to big stations to magazines to you know engage, I guess, with an audience to be like, hey, like these are this is this is something about that music that you like that I think you should know. Um, and hopefully, I can just like you know tick up that count, and one post can you know go far. And as we've seen, the so-called small blog can turn into something huge based on the content. I'm thinking about the shade room that might as well be CNN for a lot of black people. Yeah. Different podcasts, even podcasts like this one, you know, is where folks are getting uh, a lot of their information. It's it's gotten to a point to where, you know, social media accounts themselves, Instagram accounts is how people just read and and keep up in this sort of mass quick media sort of world. Uh, are are you shook? I mean, does that make you nervous? <laughs> what, what does that mean for, for the future of your field? I mean, listen, I, I want to say I hope not. Uh, not because I don't think that, you know, uh, social media doesn't have any, have its limits or whatever. I'm saying that I hope not because I think that you can only fit so much into a little bit of space and you can't get those complex notes in 280 characters. I'm at least not that pithy, you know. I'm these answers, I'm going all I, I cannot squeeze that into a little bit of a little <laughs> bit of space. Sure. And I think that people I, I want to believe at least that people are genuinely curious, that people want to know. I'm not gonna say they want to know, even if they don't know that they want to know, but I do think that you know, part of it's a matter of, I guess, skill and, and, and teamwork um, to present something factual in an interesting way that goes beyond X, Y, and Z happened. Here's a picture. That's a great hors d'oeuvre. Don't get yeah. me wrong. You know, or an amuse-bouche might be a better, uh, a better metaphor for that one. It's a great way to be like, what? what's going on? You know, you see that shade room post that, huh? Okay, well, let me let me Google that too. Let me get let me verify that you know with some outlets on Google, and then read a couple articles about what happened. So I think that might and and again that's a 
that is a, a much respect, honestly, to people that know how to do that on social media, because that is a skill to be able to, to, you know, for the hook, right? To grab, to get those eyes, and then to not only to get the eyes, but to just do enough to be like, let me throw you over here. We have someone who cooks something up that's going to provide a lot of insight, a lot of context, not put you to sleep while you're reading about that. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily shook because I, I do, I do at least want to hope that people are, uh, you know, a curious, a curious bunch. Yeah, and if the headline is the amuse bouche, I suppose the cancel culture that follows could be the digestif or, or, or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, when we talk about centering blackness in our work, whether it's on the stage through journalism or anything else, it's important. I always try to put the, the idea forth anyway, that it's not all about pimping out the pain. It's not all about black trauma. It's about celebrating, you know, the diversity of our experiences. In censuring blackness, in your work, what are some of the other um, non-traumatic experiences that you try to bring in? We've been using food analogies a lot. Has your work overlapped with food? Maybe it's overlapped with uh, beer or drink. What are, what are some oh, of the non-traumatic man. parts of of the- <laughs> that you celebrate Blackness with? Yeah, I mean, I, I like food a lot. I like writing about food, um, you know, thinking about beer right over and all that stuff. Um, you know, there's a there's an element of joy that can be found too in conveying uh, in conveying um, the sounds that we create. I remember one of the so just to back up in February of this year, last year, 2020. So before all this went down, I had this idea um, to start a column uh, called "Hear Me Out." I did not know at the time what that would mean for me, and now I know that I have to produce words of that. You have a certain length every week talking about a piece of music. And some days I'm like, I got to do again? What did I, I do this myself? But the whole point of that, the reason why I wanted to do that, because Black History Month was coming up. And I had the realization that, you know, uh, Black History Month will be inherently tokenistic unless you're engaging with Black art on the regular outside mm-hmm. of it. You know, you just can't write about William Grant still in February. You got to write about that dude you know, and not July. only him on top and of not that. only him, you know, like, listen, I can write about Helen Eugenia Hagen in September if I want to. So the, the so that, that was the, that was the start of that. I was like, I, this gives me an entrance to just write about whatever I want musically from whoever I want. It doesn't need to be pegged to a date or to a theme. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the first pieces I did, I think the first one I did was actually a Florence Price Nocturne, but uh, I think the week after that, no, first it was a Margaret Bonds. That's irrelevant. Even not Margaret Bonds, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> one of the pieces that I did was um, actually let's take the Margaret Bonds. It was Ballad of the Brown King. Yeah. And I wrote about that, I think in late January, early February. So Christmas was very much over. And to me, it was about putting front and center a piece of work, you know, uh, by this, you know, um, by this black composer to celebrate the presence of us. Right. At what has been painted as a, a lily white kind of, you know, uh, scene in Bethlehem. I don't know how it's in Bethlehem and lily white, but another, another example was, um, you know, back to the food thing. Um, I wrote about uh, Charles Mingus's um, All the Things You Are in C Sharp, which is that piece he did, I think it was just recorded Live at the Bohemia on that album, where he takes the, the standard All the Things You Are um, and he 
I don't I don't want to use the term mashup, but whatever. He mashes it up with um, the Rachmaninoff prelude in C sharp minor. And it is, to me, it's one of my favorite things. And when I listen to that, and I try to convey this, you know, verbally, or at least through the, the writing, when I listen to that, I just hear a party. I hear people to huddled inside in the cold over a pot of, you know, of short ribs, you know, passing around some, you know, really tasty wine. I'm not a wine guy. I don't know a lot about wine, but I know when it, when it mixes right with that meat and sticks to your bones, you know, that to me, that sounds like a, that sounds like joy to me when I listen to that piece. Um, so uh, I, I don't know. I think that, yeah, that's, uh, that's something I wanted to. No, no, that, that, that's phenomenal. And you bring your, as, as we start to wrap up here, you know, you, you've brought up the name Charles Mingus and what comes to my mind is of course, the conversation that so many of us in this work return to, you know, every few months or so defining classical music, really dealing with uh, the phrase and the implications surrounding it. Let's stick specifically with, with Charles Mingus. What do you say to the person who reads one of your pieces and says, well, that's not classical, though? It's Gilbert and Sullivan's not classical. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there could be a conversation there, too. Now, this, that, that, no, that, that's what I would say. It's like, you know, I um, I think it was, uh, was it Bonds? Was it Margaret Bonds? Um, there was a, you know, program that was done at um, where I am at QXR. And I wrote some notes for that. Um, and there was this whole idea, like she loves spirituals in her music, drawing on black folk traditions. Yeah. And to that question, you know, oh, it doesn't sound classical enough. Well, I'm like, well, what about a Polonaise, you know, or a Mazurka or, you know, you know, whatever, like a jig or something like that that's incorporated into that quote unquote classical form, right? Well, maybe I want, you know, maybe I want to stomp to kind of have that same kind of pull and gravity folk-wise that Sarah Bond does to you. Yeah. Um, and so, or Sarah Band or whatever it is. But, um, you know, yeah, that Mingus question, I'm like, what, what is taking you out of your classical element, right? Is it a saxophone? Well, that's a question about why there are no saxophones in the orchestra. You know, how has that been excluded? Because, you know, folk picked that up when they saw it being ignored and they did something great with it. You know, is it the fact that you have a pop standard that is being, you know, uh, brought into union with a, a pure Rachmaninoff? Well, you know, if, if that's the case, then how do you square a composer that you might like, like George Gershwin, who was able to write these, you know, pop standards like I Got Rhythm that, and, you know, maybe you could speak to this, Garrett, that, you know, might have been influenced you know, by someone else. More or than like, but was, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, that was, yeah. So, I mean, to me, that that conversation, I don't want to say it's moot, but it, it it's, a, it's an entryway to, to poke and be like, why are you uncomfortable listening to this in a classical setting to mm -hmm. me? You know? You know, when I was working at KVNO down in Omaha years ago, we used to put Gilbert and Sullivan in pops, mm. right? So, and and that was a special shelf. That was only for the morning and afternoon drive. They, you, they never put the pops in in the middle of the day. And uh, the orchestra would bring in bands like Pink Martini. Uh, they do their cover of Caravan with the whole orchestra, you know, which is like driving a Lincoln. You know, it's just so smooth. So hearing some of the people talking at Sphinx last year, 
Do you think it's possible that maybe the next iteration of a pop series might be the mashup of the orchestra with the baby or um, covers of D'Angelo somehow incorporated? Is that on the landscape? Because that harp player is going to have some work to do at the beginning <laughs> of Rockstar. See? <laughs> You know, uh, this is a this is a much longer conversation, so I won't get into it. But I'm going to just say that my views on what respectable quote unquote music is have changed for I think the better. When I was younger, I think I was very much in that mode of this music is what it is and should not be should not be touched or tampered with. I think that, and I and I and I get this. Um, you know, I don't say I get it, but I, I I know that there's this. Let's just call it a an in the know or like classist, if you even want to call it that, racist, if you want to go that far, loathing that some listeners might have. Excuse me, with um, uh, sorry to say, that they might have with um, bringing the bring that crossover sound with the crossover sound. Crossover's entire idea is predicated on, well, shoot, you know, let's just, you know, link up Alanis Morissette and, you know, Luciano Pavarotti or something, you know, have them just go at it. And that's going to sell people that like that, you know? So I, I think that when you start knocking that, what if someone, what if someone genuinely does like the, the Drake and Toronto Symphony uh, Orchestra concert? Yeah. What if someone genuinely did like, you know, uh, what was it? A couple years ago that Kanye and Beethoven kind of like thing you know if you don't like it that's cool that's between you and the creators and your ears but to crusade against that actively I think is an act that of, of 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 great exclusion because you want people in the concert hall that's what you're saying to me but oh but just not like that you know come and, for yeah well, go ahead know, I, I was gonna say I think that's what a lot of it is rooted in is as quiet as it's kept as much as we don't like talking about it from my perspective railing against and protecting a space from a certain type of music is protecting that space from a certain type of people I can't I can't separate those two things mm-hmm. but the arts institutions pretend that that's a fair separation yeah you know it, and it's it all comes back to me to this idea of you know you think you asked earlier about like how I felt about like that the term itself just kind of like classical music when it's applied to you know people that do or composers I'm gonna say composers that have dabbled in those different popular forms and I think the problem with with classical music is that it because the the problem with the phrase classical music I want to say is that it's so broad that it lets you find shelter wherever it is convenient for you if you're the gatekeeper right you know, classical music means, it can mean chant. It can mean, you know, like, you know, French opera with a ballet in the middle of it. It can mean a string quartet. It can mean a nonet, uh, an entire kind of, you know, orchestral, you know, full uh, sound. Um, but to me, when I hear the, and I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be real. I mean, classical music is a fine term to use when I'm organizing my records behind me, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I can't I can't shake the thought that the phrase classical music means and still means to a lot of people music with violins by white people, um, and that it's a, it's loaded in that way, um, and so for that to happen, you need to kind of blow up the idea or blow up the phrase and look inside of what do you mean when you say classical music, 
and you say, I love classical music, go a bit further. Oh, so I can throw on some, you know, some, you know, uh, I don't know, some Monteverdi and will be happy with that. Oh, you meant, you know, throw on some, some Mendelssohn instead. Oh, okay, so you can define what you mean by classical music. Let's go a little bit deeper. Right, um, right, so, right. Yeah. <laughs> because as far as I'm concerned, you know, getting back, coming full circle to the New Yorkness of it all, Nas is a classic composer. Illmatic is a classic body of work. So mm -hmm. that can count as well. I, I agree with you when it comes to blowing up that phrase, uh, classical music. Uh, we're, we're, you, you use the word respectability and um, th that's where we're going to leave things off. But uh, before we go there, how can folks check out your work? How can they uh, connect with you and see some of the incredible uh, agitating you're doing in, in the journalism field for classical yeah, music? Thank you. Um, so most of my work is, uh, is, is published on WQXR, uh, WQXR.org. Um, and uh, at the bottom of the site, you know, is the area for the blog and you can go through there and see the writers and, and I'm up in there. Um, I'm also, uh, I guess I'm going to say I'm working on a, on a website right now. This is not a Squarespace plug. I'm just working on a website. <laughs> Yes, because Squarespace needs to pay us if you yeah. <laughs> run them coins. No, I'm working on a website now with a buddy out in Chicago who was, you know, uh, helpful enough to help me get set up so I can, you know, take those pieces and put them in one central place, um, you know, to 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 share with people. Because, like I said, you know, I, I do want I do want people to 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 read what I have to say. I do want to take that feedback. I've gotten some good feedback. I have made some very large mistakes. Let's just put it lightly. And um, when people can respectfully say, you know, hey, you messed up, but I want to see you be better, I I'll take that to heart, you know, and I'll and I'll then I'll do my best. So I want to be able to centralize that, so I can I can I can get that feedback and keep trying to tell these stories. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the biggest stories from my perspective when it comes to journalism is the idea of someone being silenced, someone being censored, someone having to deal with the respectability that they're working under when it comes to the creation of, of their content. We started with Malcolm X, you know, and he most famously said, by any means necessary. Do you think fighting against that respectability is an any means necessary sort of situation? Would you give the advice to an up and coming writer to, you know, don't shake the boat too much if you want to rise. I mean, what, what, what do you say, you know, to that person who's really looking to enter uh, into a similar field as yours, but is concerned about the respectability required to have success in it? Ooh. Um, what I would, I, I would, I would come at it with, I think like a three-pronged thing. I'm gonna to try to keep this as articulate as I can and not go all over the place. The first thing I would say is ask them to think about what that word respectability means. In a lot of, in a lot of instances, it means professionalism. Um, I joke often about how I don't like that word professionalism because it means white professionalism. Mm. There is a, there's a cultural way of coming to and doing your work. Um, and I think that I can, I might even just go, go out there and even say that a lot of times we're conditioned to want to fall into how that works. And I just mean by the presentation of, you know, who you are and what you're doing. Um, the first thing I would say is you need to try to figure out how to be your authentic self uh, in that space. And if there's an issue with that, with your hair, with, you know, the way you speak, well, then that's a lawsuit at that point. 
you know, um, in terms of this kind of like that, that authentic expression. The other thing I would probably say is, is to, is to, is to make, is to, is to make the thing or to work on the thing that you think moves that conversation in the direction you want it to go or allows you to kind of, you know, or to just to say, to speak your truth, right? To, to say your piece and to keep making that. And what I feel is that if for whatever reason that your place of business isn't putting that forward, then what you've done is you've created a backlog for yourself of your commentary, of your thoughts, of your criticisms about the music and the institutions in which you've kind of found yourself, you know, quote unquote, professionally yoked to. Um, you know, I might ask the, you know, this person if there's anything in their, uh, in their terms of employment that's like, if we pass on a story, can you put it elsewhere? You know, can you sell it? Uh, as a freelancer, can you put it onto your own site? But I do think that it's important to, and I, and I still struggle with myself sometimes, just, you know, for the get up and go, right? Because I have a lot of ideas that, you know, I'm not necessarily equipped to do right now, but I'm always trying to tinker with that. So when that moment comes, it can live somewhere. But I guess it is, yeah, you know, keep making it and present it and say, all right, y'all said no. I'm gonna put that in my pocket. I'm gonna put that in my on my on my site. I'm gonna put that in my portfolio. I'm gonna check those terms. And if it's nothing that says that I can't go to another outlet and say, I have some thoughts on that, then uh, you know that's what I that's probably what I would say. little Mingus there since that came up in the conversation. Scott, I saw you perk up when James mentioned Mr. Mingus. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got turned on to Charles Mingus's music, uh, believe it or not, as a senior in high school. The teacher for uh, one of my English classes, the one where we read all the really esoteric and absurdist novels, you sure. know, all the really heady stuff. Yeah. He, uh, he had a reputation of um, um, Enjoying various accoutrements on the weekend. You like to smoke weed, okay. Yep, there you go. (laughs) So, yeah. um, And he was the one that turned me on to Charles Mingus. He he used to say that Charles Mingus was his number one hero. Well, well, that one's called Monin. So shout out to the late Charles Mingus. And shout out to James Bennett II for joining us on this opus. I think it's very important for us to shine a light on not only the musicians. We I think, you know, a lot of the discourse has allowed us to understand the problems and only centering the orchestra mm-hmm. in the conversation of classical music, so called classical music. Yeah, well yeah. even even performance. We we're good at talking about the radio and uh broadcast arm of it. There are folks like James out there sitting at the I, I was gonna say the typewriter, sitting at the uh <laughs> keyboard. <laughs> you know, creating creating the content and really, you know, taking on the responsibility to do his part in this, you know, continued push for um, equity in the arts. Uh, I want to pose the same question that I posed to him, to you, when it comes to 
something like the murder of Malcolm X and being in a position like that. You're a writer. You're supposed to be sticking to classical music. You're also supposed to be making efforts to make it topical. How would you have reacted to that? How, how, how do you think even in your job now, if this were 1965, how would you have reacted to finding out about the murder of a leader like Malcolm X? Do I have the mindset of the time or do I have the mindset now. that I have you're, now? You're really woke for 1965. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Well, um, obviously, you got to break into programming and make the announcement. Um, but as far as how would I respond, like, would I play some music or would I make it like a, I mean, anything. I mean, a dedication or I something mean, you're, like you're that. You're finding out the news and, and you're in the hot seat. How, how, are you, how are you reacting to it professionally? If I have this mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, the technology and all that, you know. Okay, if I had this mindset and the technology, I would treat it a lot like uh, I treated the murder of George Floyd. Mm. Was there unrest after Malcolm's, uh, after he was killed? Oh, yeah, of course, of course. And, and we, it's not in our face as much as, you know, contemporary uprisings are just because of technology. But of course, of course, absolutely. Um, I, I just don't know as much about that as I would yeah. say uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And there's, or, a, and there's a reason for that. Right. And, and if, you know, if, if those sorts of things were happening on the front pages of newspapers and things, could you imagine the frustrations, the conversations that were likely happening privately? Mm. Well, when you put some of those private thoughts and uh, discourses on Front Street for everyone to see, it's, you know, not only something that makes certain people uncomfortable, but creates some legendary content that we look at decades later, even 50 years later. Here's an excerpt from one of those to get us into the triloquy for today. Like, I think one of the nicest things that we created almost as a generation, and it wasn't us because Martin Delaney and those people were way before us, but just the fact that we could say, hey, I don't like white people. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. It's a great generation. It was a beginning of, of course, yeah. being able to like them. Exactly. You know, exactly. which of course it upsets them, but that's their problem. So that conversation, that excerpt from that conversation is one that I've been sharing with a lot of people over these past couple weeks as I, you know, again, Black History Month, going back to black content of the past. That was a conversation produced for a television program called Soul back in 1971, a conversation there between Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin. Before we get into that excerpt specifically, Scott, you hadn't heard of Soul, but you did mention Kaleidoscope Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and other shows like that yeah what were so for folks who don't know these sorts of shows basically were the 1970s version of all of these zoom panels on race that we're having it's these good. days yeah okay yeah 50 years later literally 50 years later we're still having panels and we're still trying to figure things out but it seems like the conversations were more matter of fact and direct and spicy Back then, much more 100%. than they are today. It, it, is, is that what you see? I totally, I totally agree with it. I, I think that a lot of these shows that you showed me both tonight and all, all the Donahue that I saw in real time in the 70s and 80s, um, I think would be censored now. Mm-hmm. Or I think that there would be somebody sitting on the bleep button, probably. And but even beyond expletives, <laughs> like we can talk about <coughs> Donahue using the n-word but i'm talking about the actual content of what's yeah being said. that too that too yeah all of it was spicier and more in depth yeah and uh you you had white folks coming up and asking questions 
that I sit and cover my eyes. Like, yeah. oh my God, did you say that? Um, and obviously that's just an effect of the time, but I guess it's one positive thing to say that at least we're a little bit more sensitive today asking sensitive questions like that than we were in 1971, perhaps. I want to, before I take a second, not long, but just take a second to unpack and apply that quote, that very spicy quote, seemingly for some anyway, from uh, Nikki Giovanni. I want to read from the American Composers Forum Statement of Racial Equity. At, at the end of that statement is a glossary of terms, which includes terms like underrepresented genders, anti-racism. What is that? You know, mm-hmm. how does the American Composers Forum define composer, diversity, equality, equity, the difference between the two? Well, in this glossary is a definition of whiteness and white. And I'm just going to read it verbatim here. It says the National Museum of African-American History and Culture states that whiteness and white racialized identity refer to the way that white people, their customs, culture and beliefs operate as the standard by which all other groups are compared. Whiteness is also at the core of understanding race in America. Whiteness and the normalization of white racial identity throughout America's history have created a culture where non-white persons are seen as inferior or abnormal. So, Scott, you talked about the depth of some of these conversations that were happening on these television programs on this content way back when. When I hear Nikki Giovanni talk about a generation normalizing being able to say and affirm, I don't like white people. I understand how that can be really, really off-putting to a lot of white people. And I'm not just saying that I definitely understand because what I definitely, what, what I, uh, what I go to instantly to draw a comparison is when I hear women say things like, I don't like men or, or men hate women or things like that. I think blanket statements can be harmful and some, to some degree and hurtful, what I think about is what folks like Nikki Giovanni James Baldwin, they're not only what their experiences were, but their understanding of concepts like white and whiteness. If you go back and look at the rest of that conversation uh, where they go off from there, they go into talking about how Malcolm X spoke to whiteness and white racial identity, not as something that is exclusive to the pigmentation of someone's skin, but the cultures and the um, and the traditions tie with it. Nikki Giovanni also goes on into that conversation by talking about how sometimes you can see um, and come across white people with the black mind, with a mind aware of racialization. She says, much more often you see black people with the white mind, which I'm sure you can understand Mm -hmm. (laughs) that Mm -hmm. perspective. But um, all of that, just to, you know, kind of point an eye to is because this is the last opus of Triloquy for Black History Month. As content creator, Scott, I uh, take a really big responsibility in making sure that I'm offering something real, something that is unapologetic to the people. I also acknowledge that We are upholding a tradition that's been in the works literally for 50 years, not in the same way. Podcasting is very different than broadcast television, Mm -hmm. and the times are different. Mm -hmm. But what could we possibly say that's spicier than what 
folks like James Baldwin or Nikki Giovanni or Malcolm X or Huey P. Newton or all of these other black leaders mm-hmm. of decades past, they they were spicy. Right. We're we're the ones trying to be nice. No, it's kind of yeah, that that's a good point. And the arguments are all retreaded. I mean, we're we're having we're we're making the same and listening to the same arguments. Well, I'm gonna tell you, um, who is not trying to be nice as we quickly move on to our second trilogy. Last week we had three, and this week we're going to have three, and that's going to be it. <laughs> uh, I'll believe that when I see it. Go so ahead. So the Go mayor, off. the former mayor, I should say, I'm looking for my tab here, of the city of Colorado uh, City of Texas, no longer has a job because his little Twitter fingers got him in trouble. I'm reading from uh, CBS News here, the uh, headline says, Texas mayor resigns after telling residents desperate for power and heat only the strong will survive. Here's, I'm just going to read directly from the tweet, not the whole thing. Again, this is from Tim Boyd, the former mayor. It says, let me hurt some feelings while I have a minute. No one owes you are sick, your family, anything, nor is it the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this. Sink or swim, it's your choice. The city and county, along with power providers or any other service, owes you nothing. I'm sick and tired of people looking for a damn handout. I'll link the whole thing there if uh, in the description of this if you want to go on to look. First and foremost, Scott, grammatically and spelling-wise, this is the mayor of a town, so the bar must be so low if you're a white man named Tim Boyd, much less to go on and say some shit Mm -hmm. like that, Mm -hmm. okay? We're talking about, again, going back quickly to Nikki Giovanni saying things like the freedom to say, I don't like white people, but but, but folks like this can make it to the mayorship. I, y'all, y'all shouldn't, y'all shouldn't like white people either. If this is what is is representative of what power structures are are giving us, I can encapsulate that entire uh, post in one very short sentence, which is "Let them eat cake." That's essentially what he's saying: is I got mine. If you didn't buy a generator, or if you weren't smart enough to live in a rich neighborhood, then. Screw you. And what even happened back then? The French Revolution. Y'all had Joseph Bologna and Chevalier de Saint-Georges putting down his violin to pick up a sword because yeah, of, of the stuff your, happening over yeah. there. You know, and let's not let's not forget about Ted Cruz now. What what what, what are your quick <laughs> what are your quick shots on that, Scott? <laughs> don't make don't make me listen. You know what I'm gonna say. Listen, he wanted to make it clear to everyone that he was just going down to Cancun um, in in spite of people suffering in his state where they voted him in just to drop off his daughters. Okay, let's say that that is just what it was. Let's pretend, because we know it's not the case, because the internet is fast. We know it's not the case that he was going down there to drop them off and come right back. But let's say it was. You are underscoring the problem by affirming that your daughter's have access to things that most of the children of Texas don't have. But they had it hard, though. It was cold in their room. And they didn't want their friends to... They didn't want to feel left out by their friends. So, anyway, I mean, there's not a lot to say. Ted, a lot of people have crossed the border looking for a better life. So... 
of the black history leaders of decades past, what did, what, what did they always say, especially the Black Panthers? Power to the people, right? So let's go to the people real quick. I'm going live from Twitter, and I searched Ted Cruz. Let's see what they think. I see a tweet here that says, I wish Ted Cruz was as quick to reverse his election lies as he was to reverse his vacation. Mm. Mm-hmm. This next one says, Ted Cruz and his family were having a tough time. They saw an opportunity on the other side of the border. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even here, uh, uh, my name is Ted a, a caption. My name is Ted Cruz and I blame my preteen daughters for my failures. Anyway, we can go on for a long time about this. The point is, if this is not an example to y'all, to everybody, how the power structures are not built to help us, no, no one in Texas, much less the black folks down in that town in, mm-hmm. uh, in, in Colorado City, of course, this is permeating every other part of society, even music education. Real quick, Triloquy number three. So last week we talked about the TMEA presentation about building better bassoonists. That was very, very, very problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, has it has it has it marinated with you over this? Do you have any updated thoughts about it? But because I, I've spent some time I stand thinking by about it. it, I stand by everything I said last opus. What what is becoming clearer to me after really thinking about it is that problematic sort of regulation vetting term or not there's gatekeeping there and there's something that is keeping a would-be musician in this case a bassoonist Mm -hmm. from having something more because somebody is making the decision to not allow access back with that that word comes up about every five six weeks here on triloquy access we talk about making as the most amount of access as possible and we have this person doing this presentation who is cutting that down. I want to shout out Victor. So I told you last week, what did I say, Scott? We were we would find out. Oh, sure. Did I not say that? You did. And we did. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want to shout out Victor uh, for sending me the video presentation and, and, and the whole thing. This is what I want to say. I watched it and I don't know how important it is for me to post any material or even say this man's name, because at the end of the day, like I said, any bit of gatekeeping, anything that is uh, siphoning access is wrong, whether that's something problematic, like trying to affirm what a stable home is, all the way down to something that is relatively um, innocent or seemingly innocent, like hand size or or lip size or or by n- none of that is appropriate, and we need to normalize revolutionizing the way we educate and create access instead of guarding things right by the door. You know, I'm a bassoonist. Mm-hmm. I didn't have you know, a private teacher, my band director could not speak to how, um, quote unquote stable my home was, or, or, you know, we didn't come from a lot of money, but my parents always made sure I had a read. I didn't take any lessons until, um, I was an undergraduate in school, but that doesn't mean that I was able to figure it out and even more than figure it out. Right. I would say that learning to play the bassoon worked out for me to an extent. Yes. I left the stage, but I made the stage. I did what right. most bassoonists would never were, were, would never be able to do. So when I'm thinking about educating bassoonists, I'm thinking about my experience and how it is possible with that access. 
what I was saying over dinner, Scott, <laughs> about this person who made this presentation is that maybe there is a little bit of projection. Maybe this person would not have passed this vetting process and has had a hard time and is unable to be successful in the world of orchestral music. So it has to turn to being at home, making problematic presentations like these and getting whatever students you can. That, um... I don't know. Sounds like projection to me. Sounds sounds like he has some things he needs to deal with. You know how we talked about uh, looking at some arts organizations' uh, new statements about uh, diversity and equity, you know, and they're talking about, you know, identifying the problem, you apologize for it, and then you you work to fix it. Right. Um, Anybody out there listening right now, if if you could come up with a similar list as, as this uh, gentleman did in this presentation, that instead of uh, steers you away from these things, put together a list on how you find the people that are in this category or multiple categories and instead go to them to try to teach them to play an exactly because in in the package that victor sent me again shout out to victor not only was the presentation but the live q a and a lot of the band directors were asking legitimate questions about how to teach a bassoon player a lot of these music education programs just do not teach bassoon a lot of these band directors do not know how to play the bassoon so they're asking real questions and i don't blame any of those band directors for asking those questions but you're right the structure is not set up for a, a would-be bassoonist to even have the right instruction, okay? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that means we all have to go further and beyond to make sure that's possible, not creating more gates and not siphoning that access. What we're all, all we are is the summation of our experiences. I think James Baldwin said something along those lines. So it's not about all of us knowing everything or how to do everything, but it's all, I think it's more about us understanding where those weak points are and figuring out how we can remedy remedy them in our own way for for us of course that's racial equity and classical music as it applies down there it was bassoon teaching i think it could um, really really go anywhere i wanted to leave since this is the last black history month opus of triloquy for 2021 um with a quote from malcolm x since he's been sort of a through line of this opus anyway it says here if you're not ready to die for it take the word freedom out of your vocabulary scott i'm not asking you to 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 die for anything that's up to you to uh decide i'm not saying i'm laying down to die for so-called classical music even not even maybe not even for racial equity in classical music when it comes to it but all my cards are on the table. I'm doing everything I can. I literally spend most of my time doing this. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, and, and there's privileges connected to it, but not working at a job, not doing anything else, but really dedicating myself to this. All of my cards are on the table. I'm not saying that everyone has to necessarily put all of their cards on the table. We need as many types of people in many different types of places as possible to make sure this message gets out so that the future generation has something to deal with. I think oftentimes, though, there is a, how can I say, an underestimation of what a person can do. Scott, I know that we touch on some uncomfortable things all the time, Mm -hmm. and I know you're being pushed, and there's always more for people to do. I'm not saying, I'm not, this is not me asking you to do more as much as I'm asking you to affirm that there's always a little dust in the corners. There's always more we can do, and when it comes to racial equity, that is, you know, that that, that is what it is. 100%. 
underestimation. It must be uh, what Mr. Frank Wallace did when he was learning to play the bassoon. See you next week. (laughs) 